0: Joshua chapter 4, starting at verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord uh, your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulders according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. When all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. The Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan and when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before." The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Well, a few years ago, uh, my extended family had a Christmas party, and for that Christmas party, we were all told that we were supposed to bring an item that was meaningful to us for some reason. Um, This wasn't an item that we were supposed to bring to give away, but something that had some meaning to us, and what we did was we brought them in a bag uh, to kind of disguise them, and we would give that, gave them all to my uncle, and then he would take them and secretly arrange them on a table, and then each person was given a list uh, with everybody's name on it, and then we had to guess who brought which item. And then we'd kind of go up, and each person would take a turn and say, I think that so-and-so brought this item, and you'd give a reason why you thought that. And it was really neat because we learned a lot about each other. Uh, my dad brought a pair of gloves that his grandfather had worn. Uh, my uh, One of my aunts had brought a, a book that had an ins- inscription from her family. Uh, I brought an, um, a rhinoceros that uh, was wooden, a carved rhinoceros that's over there. And I brought that because my brother had brought that back for me from Africa, and he gave it to me as a graduation present. Uh, One of my uncles brought uh, this big military bullet that my dad had brought back from the service. My dad saw that, and it was meaningful to him as well, uh, because he thought my uncle stole it. My uncle says that it was given to him, so I don't know if we'll ever know the truth. But things can sometimes be meaningful to us, and sometimes they can spark a memory of things that we've experienced. And they can kind of remind us of places that we've been and things that we've done. If you've ever gone on a vacation and gotten a souvenir, you know it reminds you of where you got that and the things that you were doing at that time. Like I, At home, I have these sand dollars, and they're not expensive. They're just sand dollars. You probably wouldn't think much of them. But when I see them they spark a memory of the things that I did in Florida. And the, the, the things when I remember going on this boat to this island and going into the water and, you know, finding them with my feet. And I remember staying out too too long in the sun and getting boils because I was sunburned so badly. And I remember being sick that night and, and I remember transporting them back on the airplane the next day and how the security team was kind of looking at them and had to inspect them to see what they were. And so they spark a memory for me, and things can sometimes do that. They can spark a memory or bring back something that we've done in the past. In this passage, Joshua is told to take 12 people from the tribes of Israel, and these are men that are to go into the middle of the Jordan River, which, by the way, is dry, which God has parted. And they're to take these 12 stones on their shoulders. And then Joshua goes and he sets them up in a circle in a place called Gilgal, which literally means circle of stones. And these stones are to spark a memory of the amazing things that God has done for the Israelites. Now note something about this memorial. This memorial marks something that is a special memory. When we have things in our life that are important to us, that spark memories, they're usually not about ordinary events. Like I have this pen in my pocket here. And I use this pen to work on my sermon this week. But it's not special to me because I used it to work on my sermon this week. I've used many pens to work on my sermons each week. But it's special to me because my wife gave it to me for Christmas. So memories that we have and things that are important to us are important to us because they're not ordinary, they're special. And these stones are important to the Israelites because they mark something that only God could do. You know, human nature, you think when the Israelites enter into the Promised Land and maybe a generation has passed, you know, human nature could turn what happened and the things that God did into, hey, remember when our forefathers came into this land and destroyed the inhabitants of the land? Remember how mighty and strong they were? But this memorial that Joshua sets up is a reminder that God is the one who's bringing them into the promised land, and God is the one who's going to do what only God can do. The text is very clear that this is something that's a miracle because it says that, the the Jordan River was at flood stage. It wasn't like it was in the dead of summer where it hadn't rained for months. The, the, The Jordan River was literally overflowing with water. And it was quite deep in some spots. Also, we're told that it was as soon as the priests put their foot into the water that the waters parted and the dry ground appeared. And as soon as they had gone through, the waters came back. And so clearly this is a miracle, something that uh, could, God could only do. Note also that this is not the first event that is like this that has happened in Israel's history. The previous generation had been in a similar situation They were leaving Egypt, and the Egyptians were chasing after them, and they were hemmed in between the Egyptians behind them with all of their chariots and warfare and the Red Sea in front of them, and God miraculously parted the Red Sea, and once again, they were able to walk through on dry ground. You see, every generation has a river to cross. Moses' generation had the Red Sea. Joshua's generation had to cross the Jordan. And the later Israelites also had struggles that they had to journey through. And I think we also, as human beings, have a river to cross. The Bible teaches us that we're sinners by nature and by choice. Just like the Israelites were separated from the promised land by the Jordan River, we're separated from the promised land, heaven and God, by the river of judgment. Water in the Scripture often represents sh- judgment, and so our sin is a chasm that separates us from God. And what's quite interesting, I find it interesting, is that hundreds of years after this, hundreds of years after the Jordan was, was uh, parted, God once again entered into the Jordan. In Mark 1, 9-11, it describes that. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. You see what the difference is there? When the ark entered into the waters of the Jordan, the waters were dried up. They were held back. Same thing happened... Before the Israelites, when they crossed the Red Sea, the waters were dried up and the waters were held on each side. But yet when Jesus entered into the waters, the waters did not part. Instead, He was submerged beneath the waters. You see, what was happening in the Old Testament is that God's judgment was being held at bay. It was being held back. But in Jesus, Jesus dove into the waters of judgment for us. He was submerged into the waters of judgment. It's almost like he dove down into the waters of judgment and found us at the bottom and carried us up, doing something that only he could do. It reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm forty, and David says he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And I think in a sense, we are kind of like those stones that Joshua and the people of Israel brought up out of the Jordan River. Where to the world, a stone is just a stone. It's ordinary. It doesn't have much value. It doesn't mean anything. But to God, it means a whole lot. The stones that Joshua set up were different. They had a meaning and were meant to point to the activity of God. They were tangible memorials that sparked a memory of the activity of God. And in the same way, I believe that we as believers are to be tangible memorials, living testimonies that spark a memory of the salvation of God. We're ordinary vessels who God dragged up from the pit of despair and put a new song in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Matthew five fourteen to 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Who is heaven in in heaven? Stonehenge, uh, if you're not familiar, is a site in southern Great Britain uh, that includes a number of odd structures, which you can see a picture of here. And scientists estimate that it's uh, you know several thousand years old. And what's interesting about this site is that the people of this time frame didn't have any written language, and so We don't know exactly why this was here. And also, we don't know how these prehistoric peoples brought these ginormous stones and assembled them like they they are here. And so people have traditionally had many different theories about what this is and why it's there. Uh, For example, one traditional uh, mythical theory was that the great wizard Merlin brought these stones magically from Ireland uh, because giants had constructed them there. Uh, there's a legend that the da- the invading Danes brought them there. There's a legend that it's the remains of a Roman te- temple. Uh, even, one modern theory suggests that this is an uh, alien landing site where the people were preparing for the aliens to come. And, and the reason there's been so many different theories is because it's kind of an odd structure. You look at it, and there's no clear rationale for why it is the way it is. Now, we'll probably never know what, exactly what Stonehenge is, but if we had one person from prehistoric Britain, then that person would be able to tell and explain what this structure is and why, how it was constructed. In a similar way, the stones that Joshua set up would probably be an odd sight, 12 stones in a circle, a place called Gilgal. And so that's kind of the point, though. The point is that it would be this odd structure so that when you see it, it would evoke questions. So when you see it, the people would ask, so what's up with the stones? Why are they in the circle? Why are there 12 of them? And then when that question was asked, then the people of Israel could explain, because God deliver us, because God dried the waters of the Jordan and brought us into the Promised Land. In the same way, we as believers live lives that are, are in a sense, odd, different. And the way that we live is meant to evoke questions in the eyes of the world. Now, you might think to, to yourself, especially if you've been a Christian for a long period of time or grew up as a Christian, you might think to yourself, well, I'm not really that odd. A Christian is not very odd. It's a natural thing to do. And I can understand why you might think that. But to the world, we're a very odd bunch. If you're still wondering that, I think A.W. Tozer puts it pretty well in his book, The Root of the Righteous. He says, A real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, Empties himself in order to be full. Admits he's wrong so he can be declared right. Goes down in order to get up. Is strongest when he is weakest. Richest when he is poorest. Happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live. Forsakes in order to have. Gives away so he can keep. Sees the invisible. Hears the inaudible. And knows that which passes knowledge. We're an odd bunch. And the lifestyle of the Christian is meant to evoke questions. So that when people see us in the way that we live, they, and they ask questions, so why do you do this? Why do you behave in such a way? And when people ask those questions, we can say, because I used to be in the pit, and Jesus dove in, and he pulled me out of that pit and did only what he can do, and I'm not the same person that I used to be. Christ has made me new. And so we ourselves are a tangible memorial that sparks a memory that points to the great things that God has done through us. You see, Jesus picks us up out of the waters of judgment and He sets us up as a testament to His glory. Jesus picked us up out of the waters of judgment and sets us up as a testament to His glory. Just like Joshua set up the 12 stones, we're a tangible reminder, a living testimony to God's salvation, to God's deliverance. And a testimony to the nations, as verse 24 says, So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. If you're here and you're a believer, you have a story to tell. Jesus told the Pharisees that if if his people were silent, that even the stones would cry out. Even the stones would testify to his glory. But I think sometimes when we think about sharing our faith or we think about evangelism, I think we get a little bit scared by that because we think of evangelism in terms of educating other people. Now certainly there's an educational component of it. Jesus calls us to teach Teach people everything that he's commanded us. So there's an educational component of it. But that's not the primary focus of evangelism. And I think I got that wrong when I was in college. We used to go out street witnessing and we'd go on missions trips. And I had this kind of memorized spiel that I would give kind of sum up the gospel in this really short uh, amount of words. And it really didn't matter what the other person was going through or what the other person said. I just had to get my spiel out, and I wanted people to agree with my spiel. I was an educator, not a witness. But Jesus calls us to be primarily witnesses. I mean, think about it like this. Let's say you're looking for a car. A car. And you go to two different car dealerships. The first dealership you enter into, the salesman starts to tell you all the great features uh, that this car has. He he tells you about the five-star safety rating. He talks about the turbo engine, the gas mileage, all the new technological features. He talks about the amazing warranty that the car has. And he's like, you want to buy this car? Then you enter into another dealership. And that dealership, the salesman is a little bit different. He does tell you about all those things. He tells you about the turbo engine and the warranty and the gas mileage, he tells you all those things. But then he concludes by saying, you know what, I've had this model of a car since 1985. And for the last 30 plus years, this is the only car that I would buy. And my wife has one and I bought one for my kids And everybody who I tell about this car just loves it. This is an awesome car. That person isn't just an educator, he's a witness. And I think we need more witnesses in our country and less educators. We live in a post-Christian world. Now that term is kind of debated about what that means and whether that's even true. But I think the reality of what that means for when people talk about that is that many people in our country... Uh, have heard the basics of the gospel and they're either not interested or they've kind of tried it out for a while and moved on from it. And so, there was also research done that in, from the Barner Group recently and they found that Buffalo was the number 10 on the list of cities that were most post-Christian in America. The problem is not simply an education problem. If you would look In the world and look in the United States, a a majority of people would say that they were Christians. A majority of people would probably say that they know kind of the basics of what Christianity teaches that Christ died on the cross for our sins. But how many people have seen that gospel lived out? How many people have experienced a witness? How many people have, Americans have seen a person in their lives who has demonstrated the greatness of who God is? How many Americans have encountered people in their lives whose hearts overflow with worship because of how great God is? If we truly believe the gospel, then we need to be witnesses to the gospel. Not just educators. People don't need just knowledge. They need knowledge, but they don't need just knowledge. They need witnesses. They need proof, and the proof is in our lives. So some of us are here and maybe we're not believers today. And maybe when we talk about being witnesses and sharing our faith, maybe that's a little bit foreign to us and we're not sure exactly what that means. And that's okay. We thank you for being here today. that's you. I'd like to share my story with you. And hopefully, in a sense, be a witness to you. I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. Uh, My parents took me to church every week. Uh, I went, it was in a, a WANA program where we'd have to memorize verses. And I remember when I was about five years old, uh, my dad was watching the Ten Commandments on television. And I went, remember going and asking him, so wh- what are you doing? What, what are you watching? And I don't remember exact words, but I remember him asking me if I wanted to invite Christ into my life. And I said that I did. And I remember praying with him to accept Christ into my life. I didn't know exactly what that meant. I knew I invited him into my life, but as I grew up, I was always worried that God wouldn't accept me. And I was always worried that I wasn't good enough for God to accept me. And so what I did was I tried to be perfect in my own strength, even as a child. And this kind of led to even kind of neurotic tendencies where I would kind of be a little bit obsessive-compulsive or very obsessive-compulsive. Where I would try to kind of wash my hands all the time. Uh, where I would constantly be worried I was doing something wrong. So I would go up and apologize to people for things that didn't really make sense to apologize to people for. And I constantly worried that, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But I don't think he's going to accept me because I've done too many things wrong. Or I'm going to do too many things wrong. So I was constantly asking forgiveness Constantly trying to ask Christ back into my life. Because maybe I did it wrong, I thought to myself. Part of the reason I think I originally went into ministry or wanted to be a pastor was because I wanted to kind of figure out where I stood with God. I didn't want to have that weight of condemnation on me anymore. And so I started studying to be a pastor in college. I remember I was uh, doing a class on the book of Romans. Romans. And I was talking about the justification of God. And and there was one particular professor who kind of poured into my life. And I kind of explained to him what I was going through and explained to him my desire to kind of be sure that I knew Christ and to be sure that I was right with God. And he explained to me In a way that I had never heard before or never understood before. That it wasn't about my efforts. It wasn't about what I could do. It wasn't about me being perfect. It didn't matter how many sins I had done. It was about Christ and His perfection. And I had to let go of myself and that desire to try to earn God's favor. And instead trust in Him to save me. And as I learned that, it liberated me. It changed me from being neurotic and worried about those things to having a freedom of trusting in what He's done rather than what I've done. Verse that always that spoke to me specifically was Galatians 2:20, It says, "I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me." And as I went through my journey, God continued to reveal that truth to me. He continued to reveal, first of all, how sinful I was, but also how loved I was. That even though I was broken, even though I was sinful, I could have the peace of knowing God. That He could forgive me and He could change me. If you're here today and you don't know that peace, if you haven't experienced a relationship with God, you can know that today. You can leave today knowing that you have a relationship with God. Knowing that Christ has crossed the waters of judgment for you. And knowing that you can spend forever with Him in heaven. The way that we do that is by faith. Not looking inside of ourselves, but looking outside of ourselves to the cross. Trusting in what He's done. Inviting Him to come into our life and transform us. If you're here today you haven't done that, I'd love to talk to you about that after when you go home today, maybe do some business with God. Maybe talk to Him, invite Him personally into your life. Just speak to Him like you speak to anyone else. And He'll come in and change you and do for, him, do for you what only you, what He could do. Believers, if you're a believer today, you have a story to tell. God has given you a story. A story of that, something that only He could do. You're witnesses to the greatness of who God is. And when we share our story, when we live out our identity, it can transform the world in powerful ways. Joel Rosenberg, in his book Epicenter, shares a story uh, about a place in the city of Cairo uh, called Garbage Garbage City. Each morning at dawn, some 7,000 garbage collectors on horse carts leave for Cairo where they collect the garbage left behind by the city's 7 million citizens. After their day's work, they return to Garbage City, bringing the trash back to their homes, sorting out what's useful. In Muslim countries, there are certain religious restrictions on sifting through refuge. So the inhabitants of Garbage City are either non-religious or from some Christian heritage. These are the poorest of the poor, outcasts among outcasts. In 1972, a young Egyptian businessman lost his wristwatch, valued at roughly $11,000. As you can imagine, it would have been unthinkable to have a valuable timepiece returned by a member of Garbage City. Yet an old man, dressed in rags, found the man's name on the watch and returned it and said to him, My Christ told me to be honest until death. Because of the garbage man's act of obedience, the Egyptian businessman later told a reporter, I didn't know Christ at the time, but I told the garbage man that I saw Christ in him. I told him, because of what you have done in your great example, I will worship the Christ you are worshiping. The businessman, true to his word, studied the Bible and grew in his faith. Soon he and his wife began ministering to Egypt's physically and spiritually poor In 1978, he was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church and now leads a church, ironically, just outside of Garbage City. This all happened because a poor, old garbage man was a witness. Witness to the reality and the greatness of who God is. Jesus picked us up out of the waters of judgment and he sets us up as a testament to his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your salvation. We thank You that when we were in the waters of judgment, You dove in. You carried us up. You rescued us. You brought us up from the miry bog and put us on a place to stand. You put a new song in our hearts. And because of that, we thank You that we can live lives that are a testament to Your grace and Your glory. Lord, I pray that we would be lights in this dark world. In a world that desperately needs You in a world that is post-Christian, that doesn't see Christianity as relevant or worthwhile, that they would see our lives and see the love that we have for You. And that we would be witnesses to the greatness of who You are because we know that there's nothing like a relationship with You. There's nothing like experiencing Your presence. And Lord, I pray that through Your Holy Spirit, people would see that through our lives. And when they ask questions, that we would answer and tell them of the great salvation, the great things You've done for us. Lord, make us a light. Make us witnesses worthy of Your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.